Well, like Tommy said, it is good to be back with you. Um, since becoming your pastors two and a half years ago, I'm still not over the fact that I want to come home from vacation because this is where I belong. Michigan is awesome, and I had fun preaching there. Colorado was cool. We hung out with friends from college, but Idaho, right? This is where the Lord has placed us, and we are great, grateful for you and grateful to be a part of you, grateful to be home. Well, we're going to continue in our story in Genesis today, and I asked Tommy the couple weeks that he preached while I was off doing my thing, uh, I said, I need you to keep preaching in Genesis, the story of Genesis, and uh, he was not very pleased with me. Because Genesis is not his favorite preaching material. And that's okay. We all like preaching different things. But Genesis is kind of weird. And there's some weird stuff. And he's like, really? I have to preach about that. Uh, right? But I listened to his sermons. And they were good. And especially the part where he said, talked about Jacob being the hustler. You know how he was trying to hustle, trying to achieve for himself. And uh, he was the heir of the promise of God, you know, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Jacob is just this hustler who's lying and fleeing and deceiving in order to achieve his ends. But then he encounters God. God persists in pursuing Jacob, and he wrestles with him into the night, and he teaches Jacob that he doesn't need to be a hustler. That he can lay aside the struggle because God is at work. God is at work keeping his promise. And so Jacob is converted from a hustler to a truster, right? And everybody loves a good conversion story. You know those stories they tell you, people who are like caught in the deep net of sin and, and God encounters them and they're transformed. They get a haircut and lo and behold, they're volunteering with youths on the weekend, right? Like those are the best stories. Have you ever watched those I Am Second videos? Have you seen those? They're like usually the stories, conversion stories of famous people. Um, music stars or athletes or whatnot. And I think um, one of the craziest ones that I saw was the one of Brian Welch. Do you guys know who that is? He was a musician in the band Corn. Go ahead and show his terrifying face uh, whenever you have time. Um, there is a picture of him, and he is utterly terrifying. It was a metal band, and their music is dark, like really, really dark, and it's full of, like, drugs and sex and the whole bit. It just it was a very, very dark culture. But in the midst of that, Brian Walsh, I think he played, I don't know if he played the guitar or something, I don't remember. And anyway, in the midst of that, he found himself, he had everything at his fingertips. He had, he had all the women that he could have and all the drugs and the money and everything. And, but he found himself completely addicted to meth no way out, just fell on his knees before God, and God found him, got a hold of him. This guy got clean, left the base. So this is the pre, pre-Jesus, okay? A little scary, a little scary, okay? And then, lo and behold, God gets a hold of him, he gets clean, he left the band, and next picture, he is baptized in the Jordan River. And he kind of looks like Jesus, I'm just saying. <laughs> Talk about a conversion, Okay. From stuff at nightmares to a Jesus in a, you know, Easter play. It's an amazing story of conversion. A life that was one way, that was dark and twisted, and is transformed by the light of the gospel, and he's this new man. And so when we think about Jacob, we're kind of hoping for that, right? This guy, grandson of Abraham, he was full of deceit, full of lies, full of trickery. But we're hoping that this God encounter that he had, you know, the wrestling through the night, the one that left him limping around, we're hoping that it has changed him for good. But the thing is, sin is sticky. Habits are sticky. 
When you've spent most of your life lying and tricking and deceiving and fleeing, it's hard to walk a different way, even with a new God-given limp. And so right after God, Jacob's wrestling with God moment, Jacob meets up with his brother, Esau. He has cheated Esau out of his birthright. He cheated Esau out of his blessing. And he is utterly terrified to meet Esau on the way. And rightfully so, okay? Right? And so they come and they meet each other. And Esau opens his arms and embraces Jacob. And it's this beautiful moment of reconciliation, of grace given and grace received. And it's so beautiful. And Esau, he's so happy to be reunited with his brother. He says, hey, Jacob, oh my gosh, I'm so glad to be back with you. Hey, you know, we are all headed in the same direction. We are all headed home. Why don't we journey together? Your family, my family, the whole gang. What do you say? Crickets. Have you ever been asked to dinner by someone or maybe been asked like to ride to like a work thing like three hours away? Hey, why don't we ride together? It'll be great. You're like, I'd rather stick a fork in my eye. Right? What am I going to talk to with this guy for three hours? You know, you've been there. Don't lie. Don't act all holy. You have been there. Thank you very much. And I think, in a way, that's what Jacob felt because Esau's like, come on, we'll go together. It's going to be great. And Jacob's like, you know, verse 30, chapter 33, verse 13, my Lord, you know, the children are frail and the flocks and the herds which are nursing, they are a care to me. And if they're overdriven for the day, all the flocks will die. So let my Lord pass on ahead of this servant and I will lead on slowly according to the pace of the cattle that are before me and according to the pace of the children until I come to you, my Lord, in Seir. Hmm, right? You go on ahead. I'll hang back with the little ones. You know, they're really slow. But as soon, I kid you not, as soon as Esau is out of sight, he's like, all right, brother, see you at home. Heads on out. Jacob changes direction, and he goes to Succoth instead of to Seir and ultimately settles in the city of Shechem, which is in Canaan. Why? Why? Why more lying, more deception? You literally just made stuff right with Esau, and you now you're going to lie again? Why? And wasn't the plan to go back home, back to the land of Isaac and Abraham, back to Bethel, the place where Jacob had literally encountered God and had promised to follow God. Why Shechem? Like Bethel was, Bethel was literally one day's journey. It's like saying, I'm going to move to Mount Home, but you know what? I'm going to go ahead and just stay in Twin Falls and just, you know, it's just down the road. Why not go all the way to Bethel? Now, let's be clear. I am not a biblical geographer in any way. And I'm guessing that most of you don't know where these places are either. I could literally not point to any biblical city on a map. I might find Jerusalem on a really lucky day, but probably not, right? But I looked it up because I feel like it was important for us to understand this city. See, Shechem was in Canaan, a land filled with Canaanites, logically, and it was also a crossroads city. It was an economically advantageous place to settle because you had access to beneficial trading routes and opportunities, right? So it's a great place to strengthen your financial situation. Except it wasn't Bethel. It wasn't the place that God had called Jacob to dwell. Jacob settled, both literally and spiritually. He settled for something less than God's best by settling in Shechem. He deceives his brother once again, 
and then he puts down roots in a place where it is literally controlled by pagans. And when I say the word pagan, I'm not using that as an insult. When I say pagan, I mean these people who worship a god other than the god of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They worship Baal and Asherah, all these pagan gods. And so by settling there, Jacob has essentially chosen economic advantage over obedience. And he thereby settles his family in a place where they're completely surrounded by pagan influence. And given his track record as a neglectful husband and father, as you heard last week with the story of Leah, this was not a wise move. And as our story today will tell us, sin is sticky, habits are stubborn, and actions have consequences. So turn with me, if you would, to Genesis chapter 34. You need to know, as you're turning there, uh, this is a hard text, and it will be hard for some of you to hear, because it involves neglect, rape, abuse, deception, vengeance, and murder. It is a very hard word, but it is one we need to hear. So as we begin, as you find your text, I want to intentionally introduce you to someone in this story. It's the person of Dinah. Now, Dinah is both the main character of the story and also kind of a forgotten side character as she has literally no voice. Dinah is Leah's daughter. Remember Leah? She was Jacob's husband or Jacob's wife and he didn't love her at all. And she kept having babies and having babies hoping my husband would love me, but alas, he never did. And so she was neglected and forgotten and kind of abandoned except by God. And so this unloved wife of Jacob, who has no matter how many sons she produces, she can never win the heart of her husband. She has also a daughter, and her name is Dinah. And as offensive as it is to our modern ears, Dinah was property. She was the property of her father and of her brothers. She is an object whose purpose is to enhance the family's prospects and honor, hopefully through a real advantageous marriage, right? Her mother is dead. Her dad is not a doting daddy, to say the least. And our text begins with her. It's a long passage, but I want to read it in its entirety because this is not something you usually read for your devotional materials. So let's read the whole story, okay? Chapter 34, verse 1. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had born to Jacob, went out to visit the women of the region. When Shechem, son of Hamor the Hivite, prince of the region, saw her, he seized her and lay with her by force. And his soul was drawn to Dinah, daughter of Jacob. He loved the girl and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father, Hamor, saying, Get this girl to be my wife. Now Jacob heard that Shechem had defiled his daughter Dinah. But his sons were with the cattle in the field, so Jacob held his peace until they came. And Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him, just as the sons of Jacob came in from the field. When they heard of it, the men were indignant and very angry because he had committed an outrage in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing ought not to be done. <laughs> Understatement, right? But Hamor spoke to them, saying, The heart of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him in marriage. Make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourselves. You shall live with us and the land shall be open to you. Live and trade in it. Get property in it. Shechem also said to his fa her father and her brothers, let me find favor with you and whatever you say to me, I will give. Put the marriage present and gifts as high as you like and I will give whatever you ask of me. Only give me the girl to be my wife. The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and her father, Hamor, deceitfully, because he had defiled their sister Dinah. They said to him, we cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. 
Only on this condition will we consent to you, that you will become as we are, and every male among you become circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you, and we will take your daughters for ourselves, and we will live among you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and be gone. This, their words pleased Hamor and Hamor's son Shechem. And the young men did not delay to do the thing because he was delighted with, the Jacob's, with Jacob's daughter. Now he was the most honored of all his family. So Hamor and his son Shechem came to the gate of their city and he spoke to the men of the city saying, these people are friendly with us. Let them live in the land and trade in it for, their land, for the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters in marriage and let us give them their daughters. Only on this condition they agreed to live among us to become one people that every male among us be circumcised as they are circumcised. Will not their livestock, their property, and all their animals be ours? Only let us agree with them, and they will live among us. And all who went out of the city gate heeded Hamor and Shechem, and every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of his city. Well, on the third day, when they were still in pain, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and came against the city unawares and killed all the males. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the sword. They took Dinah out of Shechem's house and they went away. And the other sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because their sister had been defiled. They took their flocks and their herds and their donkeys and whatever was in the city and in the field, all of their wealth, all of their little ones and their wives, all that was in the house, they captured and made their prey. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have brought trouble on me by making me odious to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few. And if they gather themselves against me and attack, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. But they said, Should our sister be treated like a whore? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This is the family of the promise? This is the family that God has chosen to be his special people? To be a light to the nation? A young girl who is, for all intents and purposes, an orphan with a dead mom and an absentee father. She ends up in the wrong place in the wrong time and is taken advantage of in the worst possible way. And the abuser, one of the locals, acts as abusers often do, proclaiming love and devotion to his victim in an attempt to justify his heinous behavior. And when dad, the bearer of God's promise, mind you, hears the word about how his daughter has been attacked, what does he do? Nothing. He does nothing. Complete passivity. In the eye or in the face of his daughter's rape and abuse and essentially kidnapping because she's being held by Shechem's family, Jacob does nothing. Now, there are many ways that we should respond to rape and sexual assault. Some responses are good. Some are really terrible. But I got to say, I think silence, passivity, is the worst possible response. Because it silences the victim. It tries to minimize the damage, and it implicitly imposes guilt where guilt does not belong. And so, you know, when the brothers get wind of what happens, and there's like, this is so wrong, and we're going to trick them, and we're going to attack them, part of us are going like, Yes. Like they need it, right? Get them. Until you realize their great act of devotion to their sister, their great act of warrior faith, was actually more about wealth and power acquiring than it was about her honor. 
They plundered the city. They took their flocks and their herds and their donkeys and whatever was in the city in the field, all of their wealth, all the little ones, their wives, all that was in the houses, they captured and made their prey. What? So who exactly are the good guys in this story? And uh, who, who are the bad guys in this story? What on earth is going on in this text, in this special family that God has chosen to be a light to all creation? Why is this even in the Bible? Because you read this, and it is really hard to see any gospel, to see any good news at all in the midst of this darkness. It is hard to see how God's promise can move forward in this way. And yet, here it is right smack dab in the middle of Genesis, in the middle of the story of God who is making a people for himself to reach the entire world with his redemptive love. Well, I think, I think it's in here, unfortunately, because in many ways, this is us. Sin-sick, damaged by our own choices, damaged by the choices of others, consumed by our own self-interest, our own agenda, our own fear, our own shady motives. We are tangled in this sticky web of sin and of death. And if we didn't know or believe this already, this story makes it very clear that God's promise, God's redemptive work in the world cannot, does not move forward on our power, on our merit, on our ability or our goodness, because we are Jacob. Jacob settled in the land, remember? He said no to God's best, and he settled for good enough. And I, you know, you wonder why he would do that, but I think part of the reason with Jacob, he wanted to settle in this land because he didn't quite trust that God was really able to keep his promise. Maybe even wondered if God was willing to keep his promise. Bethel, the land to which he was called, it wasn't an advantageous to be a place to be, right? It wasn't in an ideal location to build wealth or establish a family. So surely God meant Shechem. I'm, I'm pretty sure I heard Shechem. Shechem? Shechem it is. I'll build an altar here. It'll be great. But no. Saying no to God's best, to God's direction, has consequences. And not just for us. It has consequences for those around us. Jacob's choice to continue in deceit and to pursue his own agenda in his own way, it shaped his family in ways that stood in opposition to God's call and his promise. His daughter, unseen and unheard like her mother, wandered away from home and into a dangerous place, right? His sons, mimicking what they had seen, were deceitful and manipulative, and they even leverage their own faith practices, circumcision, to achieve their self-serving ends, namely to acquire more wealth and honor. They were totally just living like dad. We are Jacob, saying no to God's best because we're just not quite sure we trust that God's way is the best way, that God's promise is trustworthy, that God has our and our family's best interest in mind. We are Jacob. But sometimes we are also the Hivites, the people of Shechem. 
The culture of this people was one of taking and acquiring by any means necessary, regardless of the potential consequences for others. I want, therefore I take, right? I love her. I'll marry her. We'll be one big happy family. Everybody will get rich. It'll be awesome. Behavior justified. And so too, we, when we are consumed by our own wants, our own agenda, our own perceived need, we disregard the sanctity of others made in the image of God, and we find ourselves justifying, explaining, defending ourselves and our behavior, behavior we know is wrong and runs contrary to God's good purposes. We are the Hivites. But we're also the brothers. Simeon and Levi, the revenge-taking sons. You know, they perceive a wrong committed against their sister, and they want to right it, but it doesn't take long to see that their concern was not really for her, their abused and violated sister. It was more about their own prospects, their own family honor, their own power in that region, even their own wealth. They act pridefully and they act arrogantly and deceitfully to achieve their own ends. And we are Simeon and Levi. When we act out of vengeance and self-righteousness, this is us. But perhaps most shocking of all, And the story of Simeon and Levi is the way they defame and abuse their own faith practice to get what they want. You know, they demanded that those men be circumcised. And if you remember back in the story of Abraham, God asked Abraham to circumcise his family. It was going to be the hallmark symbol. You are my chosen people, right? It was going to be the symbol, the faith marker that we are the covenant people of God. And they... Simeon and Levi took what was precious and sacred and they took advantage, forcing them to be, to be circumcised. And then as they are obviously vulnerable post-surgery, they attack them while they're still recovering. It's like calling someone to be baptized and then drowning them in the baptismal waters. They abused what was sacred to achieve their own agenda. And I got bad news for you, but we are Simeon and Levi. When we cherry-pick scripture to support our own political views, guilty. When we abuse the sacred word of God, we are Simeon and Levi. When we take the sacred word of God and we, instead of using it as an invitation to draw people into the story of God and instead use it as a billy club to get people to act the way we think they should, we abuse the sacred. When we treat grace as cheap, continuing in sinful patterns that we know perfectly well are wrong and harmful because, hey, we can ask for forgiveness, we abuse the sacred We are sinners. We are not just ignorant. We are not just silly. We are not just irresponsible. We are not just human. We are sinners. Knowingly making choices against God's desire for us. But we're not just sinners, are we? We are also the sinned against. Damaged by the sins of others. Because we too are Dinah. We are the innocents slaughtered at Shechem. Oh, Dinah. The forgotten, neglected, young, curious, wandering girl, off where you should not have been. 
but how innocent, how childlike in her naivete that she would go to a place where she knew she would be vulnerable. But the fact of the matter is, no curiosity, no unwise wandering into the wrong part of town justifies what happened to her. To be raped and held essentially prisoner by her rapist, wannabe fiancé, and then wound upon wound, her father, who was supposed to be her defender, showed utter disregard, self-serving inaction, and then her brothers running not to your rescue, but to their own self-defense in pursuit of wealth. Dinah is used as a pawn, an excuse to justify an attack on the people of Shechem to gain their wealth and power. She is objectified, and then she is forgotten. We never hear of Dinah again. And so, too, the innocent people of Shechem, whose only crime was associated with that Shechem guy, the son of Hamor, and because of their association, are robbed, ravished, and murdered. No guilt of their own. And so, too, we are Dinah and the innocents. Some of us have endured the exact same abuse as Dinah. Abused taken advantage of by the strong, by those in power. Some of us have been neglected and forgotten and abandoned and treated as a pawn in somebody else's game. We have been wounded by the selfishness of others. We have been cut down by the greediness and insatiable appetites of others. We are Dinah. We are sinners, and we are the sinned against, in need of both a rescue and a reckoning for the things that we have done and have been done to us. This chapter leaves us in a dark place, doesn't it? None of the conflicts are resolved. Dinah's future is in tatters. She is no longer eligible for a marriage, much less an advantageous one. A city has been slaughtered. The violent, vengeful sons of Jacob go unpunished, it would seem. And passive, inactive, untrusting Jacob carries on safe, rich, and seemingly untouched. We want an epilogue, don't we? We want like an extra chapter that untangles all the knots and the hurts in this story, but there isn't one. And so the question becomes, what is the good news? What is the good news? Where is the gospel? Where is the gospel when we are sinners? Where is the gospel when we are so, so guilty? Where is the gospel when we act on our own agenda instead of obeying God's best? Where is the gospel when we find ourselves slaves to our desires and our passions, acting rashly with disregard for others to get what we want? Where is the gospel when we respond to hurt with revenge? Where is the gospel when we abuse the sacred to fulfill our own agenda? What is the good news for us sinners? But in the same way, we have to ask the question, what is the gospel when we are the sinned against? What is the gospel when we are ravished and abused? Where is the gospel when we are forgotten and abandoned? What is the gospel when we are alone and hopeless and our future is in tatters? What is the good news? 
Now, for the family of Jacob, both the sinners and the sinned against, the gospel for them was this. Nothing can thwart the good future of God. Nothing can stop the promises of God. Nothing can stop the redemptive purposes of God. If our sin, the most abhorrent sin that we have committed and that has been committed against us, could stop God's goodness, the Bible would have ended right here. Genesis 34, the end. And the family of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob messed things up so badly that God threw in the towel and left them through their own devices. He wished them good, well, good luck and farewell. The end. Thanks be to God. That's not the end, is it? It wasn't the end for Jacob's family. It wasn't the end of the persistent promises of God. From the point of their brokenness, God would continue to redeem. He would continue to act for the good of Jacob and Jacob's family through the people of Israel. The promise goes on. It goes on through Lionel Jacob. It goes on through his 12 sons, especially, though, through Judah. Judah, the ancestor of King David. Judah, the ancestor of King David, who is the ancestor of a young girl named Mary, who bore to us a son, Jesus the Christ. And God's promise to redeem all of creation through Abraham finally finds fulfillment as God himself in Jesus steps down to redeem and heal and forgive and make new. Oh, what love that finds us in our various states of disarray, at our point of most broken, tangled in the sticky web of our sin and rebellion, our woundedness, maimed by the sins committed by others. What love that frees us from the mess, that binds up our wounds, that calls us forward into a new way of life. Nothing, no sin. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. No sin so vile that God cannot save. No wound so deep that God cannot heal. We are the sinner and we are the sinned against. But by the grace of God, there is a way forward for both forgiveness and freedom from the hurts. Well, we are going to respond today in our worship song as we always do but I would be amiss if I don't give you a chance to respond I don't do it very often in the Nazarene church we have these little things called altars because we're a revivalist tradition but a lot of times we look at altars and we think eh, that's where you go if you're really in trouble if things are really bad people are going to think something in some traditions, people come forward at the end to receive membership or to receive the sacrament. But today, I am opening these altars for you. Not to join the church and not to shame you, but as an act of humility, acknowledging a need, a need for forgiveness from the sins you have done. Acknowledging a need for freedom for the sins that have been committed against you. It is a physical reminder to humble ourselves that we might receive it's just a good place to pray to receive forgiveness and freedom and healing god we give you first our thanks our deepest deepest gratitude 
for your love that goes above and beyond anything we can imagine. Your love that is stronger than our sin. Your love that is stronger than our hurts. Lord, we acknowledge we are sinners. We have done wrong. And we ask you to forgive. Restore us. In your love, restore us. But Lord, we also have been wounded, damaged by the bad choices of other people, things beyond our control. And we need healing. We need your restorative healing love to do a work in us that we might be free, free to forgive, free to move forward into your good future because we trust it. We trust that you are making a way, a good future for us as we seek to participate in your redemptive work in the world. We are sinners and we have been sinned against but we trust that your love is enough to set us free. We ask it in the name of your powerful spirit and in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Why don't we stand and respond to this good word with worship?
Thanks be to God. Beloved Christ Church, would you extend your hands to receive the benediction? Beloved, may you walk in the knowledge that God's love is enough, enough to forgive, enough to heal, enough to set you free. Walk in full trust of his undying love. Go in action and go in peace. Amen.